0: Good morning. My name is Tyler Johnson. I am one of the pastors here. We are continuing in our study of the gospel of Mark. So if you have a Bible, open it up. It's actually Mark is towards the second half of your Bible. It's a gospel. Uh, The New Testament starts Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 12. We're moving in in towards the end of the book of Mark. Next week, uh, we're going to deal with a big section dealing with What people call end times, theologians call eschatology, where Jesus says uh, some weird stuff that will help prepare us for what may be coming. But today, uh, he talks about a really dangerous act, a very dangerous act that he is calling all of humanity to. So we're going to look at that, and we are going to start in Mark chapter 12. We're going to look at 28 to 44, but I want to start by reading verses 32 through 34, which is a scribe's response to Jesus after Jesus has just said what the greatest commandment is. Verse 32, And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all of the heart, with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let's pray before we get into this passage. Father, we uh, come before you and pray that you would answer today where we are in relation to the kingdom of God. Are we far from? Lord, are we close or are we in? God, answer that. We want to know. There are so many of us in here that struggle even thinking through these questions because of things that have been said to us or things that we've said. God, there are things um, for those of us in this room that have been done to us or that we've done to other people. God, we need healing. We need a word from you. We need clarity. We need you to establish For us what's real and what's worthy of our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Jesus says this very interesting thing to this scribe. Jesus has been saying really interesting things, uh, this whole section, to the religious establishment, which really broke down into three groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and now the scribes. These people didn't all agree with each other, but they were known as the religious establishment. And if you Study Jesus much at all. or you read the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus is always butting up against the religious establishment. He was a Jew, and yet he was butting up with the religious establishment of the Jews all the time. Just prior to this passage, he's gone at the Sadducees, who didn't believe in the resurrection. And Jesus, just before this section begins, says that God is the God of the living, not the dead. And he looks at the Sadducees and says... In no uncertain terms, you're wrong. There is a resurrection. Now there's one man, a scribe, whom's so intrigued with how Jesus is interacting with people and what he's hearing, and he sees that Jesus is answering well, that he goes to Jesus to ask him, what's the greatest Of all the commandments in the law, he was an expert in the law, a scribe would have been. He's an expert in the law, and yet he goes to Jesus to ask him what the greatest of all the commandments is. Jesus says it to him, which we'll look at in a minute. The man then recites it and concludes that that commandment is more important than all of the things they would bring in worship. And Jesus says this to him. You've answered correctly. You're not far from the kingdom of God. So I want to jump off of that and just ask that question that I asked in our prayer. How far are we from the kingdom of God? Even more specifically, how far are you? Right now, if you answer that question, because there's a lot of people in this room at very different places. If we just said that there were three places on the spectrum of where you are in relation to the kingdom of God, would you be far from the kingdom of God? Would you be close to the kingdom of God? Or would you say, I'm in the kingdom of God? Well, partially, we just need to answer this. What is the kingdom of God? Well, a kingdom is clearly a place where someone reigns, where there's a king. So the kingdom of God would be the place where God reigns, where he rules. And every kingdom also has subjects of that kingdom who surrender themselves to his kingship or to his lordship. But in simple terms for all of us here, the kingdom of God is what God intends for the world that he made. Let me just say that really easy. The kingdom of God is what God intends for the world he made. The kingdom of God is what God intends for the world he made. Now, I'm going to say something to you that you may disagree with, and if you disagree with me, I'd love to talk to you afterwards um, to tell you the truth. The kingdom of God is that which every human heart is after. The kingdom of God is that which every human heart is after. And here's just a small defense of that. In the book of Ecclesiastes, which is an Old Testament book, the author says that God has set eternity in the hearts of men and women, which would mean God set his kingdom in our hearts. We're all craving What we think is the best world, regardless if we acknowledge God or not, we're all after a better world, and in so doing, say, this world that we're living in now is not the way it's supposed to be. So regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, you would say, if we advanced in this direction, would be the world would be better. If we advanced in that direction, the world would be better. Whatever you believe about the rise of technology, or we need more of it or less of it. The world would be better. We're all seeking a better world. The question is what we think is better and how we think we'll get there, but we're all after it. Now, Jesus today is, we're going to play out this conversation about the kingdom in three ways. We're going to see in the first section that he defines for us the key of the kingdom. Then he's going to clearly establish the king of of the kingdom and then the cost of the kingdom he's talking about the kingdom of God the way God intends the world to be he's gonna say what is the key of the kingdom who's the king of the kingdom and what is the cost of the kingdom so the key of the kingdom he says to this man you're not far from the kingdom of God and he's inviting him even further into this kingdom with that statement now think about a key if any of you guys ever participate with me here for a minute had the wrong key or thought you had the wrong key. Participate means raise your hands. Anybody had a wrong key before? Okay, when I grew up in Denver, um, we had a true mailbox. Like there was one box for our house. We didn't share this like silver cubby hole thing with a bunch of our neighbors. We had a, a real mailbox and you didn't need a key to open it. You just lifted the door down and you put a little flag up or down and that was your mailbox. Well, now we have these silver um, metal cubby holes that you gotta open and I've had trouble with this, and heat always increases the trouble, right Of like for one, you're walking outside to get your mail and you're like, "Good God, Almighty, I don't even want to be out here for a second, let alone." And then you'll walk up, and at times, the heat can affect the lock that you can't get the key in, and then you're wondering, "Is this the right key? Is this the mail key from the house that we had seven years ago? Do we have the right key? You're losing? But heat intensifies it always. But now, in these boxes, you have your personal box, and then the best time when you open the mail is when you open it up and there's another key inside the box. <laughs> because if there's another key inside the box, then that means there's something bigger in these shared boxes below that you get to go in. Well, the same thing happens. There's like four of the bigger boxes in my big cubbyhole silver mailbox. And I'll go, and there's writing on these mailboxes that is like rubbed off, probably because of the heat. The ink's like, get me out of here, and they just want to disperse. But you can't figure out, is it one or two? The key's written on, you can't figure out. And so you're jamming, and there's two locks in each one of the big boxes. And so I'm trying to figure it out. Well, it's hot. I don't want to be out there any longer. But my curiosity of what's in the big box makes me even more angry, right? You're just sitting there going, what is the reality behind that? And the heat intensifies this, right? And so you're screaming at the boxes, you're hot, you're sweating, and yet your curiosity is piqued. Heat does this all the time. Heat in, heat in real life. We all experience it one way or another, right? Our health, the heat gets turned up. And we start asking real questions, ultimate questions. Why does this happened. What's the meaning of this? What's the purpose of this? Economic crisis, marital crisis, family crisis, global crisis, whatever it may be, when the heat gets turned up, we start looking for the key to open things into ultimate reality for deeper questions, for deeper meaning. Well, the heat in world history gets turned up at different times. And in the 1960s in the United States, it was turned up in full force. And there was a man named Martin Luther King Jr. And Martin Luther King Jr. has a statement in which he says this, love is the key that unlocks the door to ultimate reality love is the key that unlocks the door to ultimate reality in this instance martin luther king was in line with jesus and we're going to see that very clearly in this section of mark chapter 12 this scribe the heat's being turned up he hears some very intriguing things about jesus He sees Jesus disputing with other people and seeing that Jesus had answered them well. This is the very beginning um, of... It's not the very beginning. It's Mark chapter 12, verse 12. He sees that Jesus had answered them well and he asks him... So now he's asking Jesus, I'm an expert in the law. What commandment is the most important of all? What commandment sums it all up? Which commandment supersedes them all? What's the greatest of all the commandments? This man had heard Jesus... He was provoked by Jesus, the person, and he was provoked by what Jesus said, what he had been hearing. So he asked him, give me the core answer. Give me the core, Jesus. What's the greatest of all the commandments? To which Jesus answers, verse 29. The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, With all of your mind and with all of your strength. The second is this you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So let's break down Jesus' answer. He starts by saying to him, Let me tell you what the greatest of all the commandments is. The greatest of all the commandments in his answer, which is a threefold answer, to start off with, he establishes who God is, he establishes how we should respond to God, and then how we should respond to God by how we should respond to other people. So let's break this down. He starts immediately around this idea, it's very clear, of love, but he does it by saying the Shema. Every Jew, every Jewish person was taught from the time they were tiny that multiple times a day, they would recite what was called the Shema, this declaration, this prayer. And it said this, listen, O Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now here is what was being established for little kids to say to adults on their deathbed is that there is only one God They lived amidst a time, as we do now, where many people worshipped many different gods. And he said all of the gods of the nations, in this declaration, the Jewish people were saying all of the gods of all the other nations are but idols. Here's what that means. They're not gods at all. They're gods of our own making. And that translates into the New Testament and into our day today to say there are all these things you and I and our world is chasing after that are trying to say to us this is a utmost reality. This is the way to utmost life. This is truth when in fact they aren't truth, they aren't life, and they aren't the way. They're little g-gods, the Bible would say, which are no gods at all. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, as Christians, we know in the New Testament that God is defined in 1 John 4. If you're a note taker, which I love seeing so many of you guys write this down. 1 John 4, there's a statement about God in his very nature, about who God is, that says this. God is love. Therefore, the declaration, what's the greatest of all the commandments, starts with there is one God. And if we said, who is this God? This God is love love. There is no other gods. There's hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's God. Now he begins to talk to us, how we respond to God. All human beings, the Bible says, are made in the image of this God who is love. Stop for a minute and, and hear that. This is really important. Every human being, that means you and I. When I say you, I mean you. Think about you. We're made in the image of God, along with every other human being that you will see today or see throughout this week. We're made in the image of God, in the image of a God who is, 1 John 4, love. That means, at our very core, we were made to be Lovers. We were born for love. Interesting enough, there's all kinds of research happening right now, um, specifically in the category of brain research. They call it neuroscience, big word. Um, There's a book actually written by some counselors that aren't even Christians right now called Born for Love that talks about the ways we get screwed up in our lives is when love is broken, when we, we are failed in being loved and when we fail to love that things get all broken. These aren't even Christians, but they're recognizing the fact that humans were born for love. The Bible would say that's because we're made in the image of a God who is love. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Therefore, love the Lord your God. Now look at verse 30. He now talks about how we are to love this God who is love. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Now, real quickly, look down. How many times does he say all? Four. Four times in one verse does he say all. Another translation says whole. Love God. How? With all your heart or with your whole heart. With your whole soul or all your soul. With all your mind or with your whole mind. With all your strength or with your whole strength. Love God with all your everything. All of you. The whole of who you are, love God. Now, 1 John 4 also tells us this, that if any of us are in this room that love God at all, because we're all on this pursuit of loving him with all of who we are, with the whole of who we are, but if we love him at all, 1 John 4 says we love him only because he first loved us. That love always begins with the God who is love. This is a very important point. So when we say, hear o Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and he's a God of love, and then we're called to love, love always begins with the God who is love. The love that God calls us to is a god of orienting and a God displaying love that we're meant to love him with our whole entire being and then he says this and love your neighbor as yourself now look at this at the end of verse 31 he says there is no other commandment greater than these now if you were in grammar school or being taught grammar You wouldn't say there's no other commandment greater than these. You'd say greater than this. So watch what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, in fact, the establishment that God is one, and specifically these two commandments of love God with all your everything, your whole self, and love your neighbor as yourself, are not two commandments. They're one. Jesus is doing something brilliant that masters in the Jewish law would have known. He's taking the Shema, the most known, the most recited, the most spoken of statement in all of the Bible, commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love him with all your everything, is the Shema. And he's tying it to Leviticus chapter 19, in which says, love your neighbor as yourself, specifically speaking about the poor. And he brings them together and he says, this is one commandment. So clearly what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, How do I love God with all my everything? How do I display that by loving your neighbor as yourself? So 1 John says again very clearly, you cannot say you love God and not love your neighbor. Now, this is where love is the great equalizer. We all now hear this call of love to our whole self, being given to God by being given to others, and we all go, this is the moment where we start looking at our phones, or we start turning the pages, or we cover our head like, Jesus, don't look at me right now. Or, more often than that, this is the moment where we try to get ourselves to believe we're okay. Oh, I do that. There was a man just like this in a very similar scene in Luke chapter 10 that comes to Jesus and asks him the exact same question. But his question is about eternal life which is the kingdom of God he says Jesus what must I do to inherit eternal life Jesus answers the exact same way love God with all your everything love your neighbor as yourself and then it says this the man seeking to justify himself you know what justify means let me show you I'm fine Jesus Let me show you I'm actually good. Let me show you I'm doing that. It says the man seeking to justify himself, look it up in Luke 10 if you want, seeking to justify himself said, who is my neighbor? You don't mean neighbor like everybody. You don't mean neighbor like my kids. You don't mean neighbor like my wife. You don't mean neighbor like my literal neighbor. You don't mean my neighbor by my coworker my neighbor by my boss you don't mean my neighbor by those Muslims you don't mean my neighbor by those atheists you don't mean my neighbor here's what Jesus does when the man says seeking to justify himself who is my neighbor Jesus goes on to tell the parable of the good Samaritan you guys have heard of this before no matter what your biblical knowledge there's a hospital in Phoenix called good Sam after this parable Here's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus says there was a man who was walking on the Jericho Road, which was a very dangerous road. He got robbed, he got mugged, he got beat up, everything stolen from him, he got put on the side of the road, bloody and beaten down, unable to help himself. Two men of the religious establishment, a Levite and a priest, walk by him and don't acknowledge him and keep walking. These are the guys who did all the right sacrifices. These are the guys who went to church all the time, who had big Bibles that were highlighted and underlined. These are the guys who posted Bible verses on Facebook, could do the exegesis, really break down the Bible and speak about it, who sang loud in worship songs, who raised their hands in worship. They walked right by him. But then along comes a Samaritan, one who didn't even believe correct, didn't have sound doctrine, in fact was questionable whether they were a believer at all. He walks, looks at the man, and at cost to himself, at cost to his time, at cost to risking his own health, at cost to his own safety, he too could have been mugged, goes down to care for this man, binds up his wounds, gives him the spot on his transportation vehicle that he had to walk alongside of his donkey or his horse. He walks him to an inn, takes him off, cares for this man, gives him a place to live, which he paid for, to then which he looked at the inn owner and said, if it costs more, I'll come back again and pay even more. At cost to himself, cared for somebody who was not like him at all. Two things that shows us clearly about our neighbor that Jesus is trying to define. If you want to know what true love is, it's even going to be those, and likely will be those who are not like you, or whom you don't like, whether they be in your home or on the side of the road, in your neighborhood or at your kid's school, or in your workplace. There'll be those who aren't like you, and likely those whom you don't like, and love is at cost to yourself. So this moment where we seek to justify ourselves, I'm doing this, Jesus takes it even farther. This is what I don't like about Jesus. He's always taking it farther. He's always saying it means more. He's always saying it means you have to change, Tyler. It means we have to change, redemption. He's always doing that. You aren't there seeking to justify yourself. So then we begin to ask these questions, well, what is love? He defines who our neighbor is and he defines what love is. So under these definitions, we'd be amiss if we didn't start asking ourselves questions like: do we, do we as a church love God with all of our everything? If He's defining it through the parable of the Good Samaritan, are we loving our neighbors? Are we allowing the words of our mouth to be fruit and not poison, to bring life rather than destruction? Are we sacrificing ourselves for those who aren't like us, for those we don't even like, whether they be inside the four walls of where we live or inside the four walls of where we work or in the neighborhood we're at? Are we loving like that at cost to ourselves, at cost to our comfort, to our convenience, to our safety, to our security? Are we? Are you? Am I? We've got to ask ourselves these questions because Jesus is posing them to us. Jesus is posing them to us. It makes you wonder, if a crisis were to break out, how would we, those who pronounce Jesus, who say we follow Jesus, how would we respond if a crisis broke out? Would we wholeheartedly love our God by loving our neighbors? at cost to ourselves or would we would there be a mad scramble of everyone trying to save their own skin it's loving even when we don't like them and likely to those whom are not like us and whom we don't like that's the key of the kingdom we'll never know ultimate reality we'll never be in the kingdom we'll never experience the fullness of the life of the kingdom unless we live these lives of love Now, what does love look like and how is it ultimately experienced? What does love look like and how is it ultimately experienced? Because we live in a world where many people are pronouncing love. You gotta be more loving and at times if you're following Jesus, you're going, I don't know if that's love or how do I know what's love? How do I know what's love in this exact moment, right here, right now? Do I be quiet? Do I speak up? Do I live in grace or do I live in truth? Like, give me a definition. Give me four points. And yet we get the four points through a message like mine and we go, ah, that isn't totally it. Why is the world so broken? And we get a two-sentence answer. Isn't it always way better when we don't get four points but we get a picture? And better than a picture, we get a real-life example. Think about training for a minute. If you do training at your work, and they give you a training manual, is that better, is it better for somebody to sit down and go, here's how you do it, and they do it in front of your face? It's way better to have somebody sit down with you and go, here's how you do it. This is why people now can do a lot more um, do-it-at-home projects, because there's YouTube, right, rather than just a booklet which I can't do it with either of them, but neither here nor there. I know YouTube's better. But even better than YouTube is somebody sitting in front of you going, watch me do it, live, in-person example. So when God calls the world to love, and he says the world's been distorted by selfishness and self-absorption, and I'm calling you to this dangerous act called love, and we go, who's our neighbor, or what is love? here's what he does he gives us Jesus remember God is love and the Bible is very clear that Jesus is a hundred percent God and a hundred percent man well I don't need to know how God would do it like I need to know how I do it as a person well I'll show you how God will do it as a person And he gives us Jesus. This is why Jesus is so passionate about revealing to them who the Lord is. Look at verse 35. This is where he begins to declare. He said the key of the kingdom is love. The king of the kingdom. And he begins to say all throughout the gospel of Mark. And this is another piece of how he's doing it. He's saying the king of the kingdom is me. The Lord of the kingdom is me. And Jesus taught in the temple, and he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And he says, This David calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Here's what's happening. You're going, how does that exactly apply? What's happening is he's now sitting with the religious leaders and they all knew that the Lord would come, the Messiah, the one who would set things straight when the world had been twisted and disordered by sin, when we'd been turned in on ourselves and there was all this injustice, when the world was not living as though God was the Lord. And they said, one is going to come to set it straight, who's the Messiah, and he will come from the line of David. He will be David's son. Now what Jesus is saying to them is he's not just going to be David's son, but he's going to be the Lord because David himself begins to call the son of his Lord. Not his direct descendant, but one of his descendants. He begins to call him Lord. So now immediately what Jesus is saying, right after he said, you must love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, And we're going, what is love? He's literally beginning to put himself forward and to say, if God is love, the Lord is the Lord of love. And he's pointing to himself saying, I am the Lord. Therefore, I am the Lord of love. Therefore, love is walking amongst you love's walking amongst us we get a real life human picture as to what love truly is what it truly means to live out our humanity remember we're made in the image of god we're made to be lovers and when we go who is our neighbor we watch jesus engaging all types of people engaging the people that the world hated A little short man in a tree who was stealing things from people. And he says, come on down. You're making lunch for me today and I'm going to your house. To prostitutes whom they say she's a woman of the city. She dare not have a place if Jesus were religious. And he goes, let me show you what love looks like walking amongst you. I'm going to sit with her. Love looks like not just that compassion, but love looks like cleansing the temple and standing in front of those people who were never challenged because they were the religious elite and in fact saying you're not religious at all. In fact, you're not spiritual at all because you don't live out the law of love. Love walking amongst us shows unbelievable compassion at cost to himself and unbelievable honesty and truth at the very same time. Jesus is providing this picture, and we go, whoa, that's love. Too often, folks, I'm telling you, I am all for four points, but if you want to know what love is, study Jesus. Look at his life. Slow yourself down. Study his cadences so that we can now go, well, what is love, and rather than people just going, well, love's doing whatever they want, Well, Jesus doesn't do whatever the people in front of him want all the time. He's pushing them way further than they want to go. He's telling them to stop doing things that they like doing. He's telling them to start doing things they don't want to do. Love is a commitment to the other person's best at cost to yourself. That's what love is and that's what Jesus does over and over and over again. Over and over and over again. There's this scene I love in John chapter 15 that begins to then get in specifically what we're called to, but how we're called to get there. I'm sorry, I said John 15. It's actually John 13. And this is this famous scene where Jesus comes in amongst his disciples. The disciples likely are taking seats of honor and they sit down on their knees with their feet behind them. And it was meant to be someone there like a servant or a slave that would wash the feet of those who maybe were walk wearing sandals, but many times just wearing their bare feet and their feet were covered with the dung of animals and all these types of things. And Jesus walks in, whom they were all saying was the rabbi, the teacher, the master. And he walks in, takes off his outer garments, ties a towel around his waist dons a wash basin and begins to wash the disciples' feet. Now hear me on this. The question of looking at Jesus is looking at love because we've been called to love. All humanity has been. But we, especially as Christians, have been called and we watch this and he walks in immediately going, how can I serve at cost to himself even in the dirtiest of circumstances? He walks in and he begins to wash his feet. But Peter at that moment says, are you going to wash my feet? You are going to wash my feet. Jesus says, yes. He says, no way. No way will you wash my feet. Not you, Jesus. You won't wash my feet. And there's this kind of pitting against each other like, you're too big of a deal, Jesus, to wash my feet. But in the end, there's this, I'm great and I'm going to correct you, Jesus, moment. So Jesus says to Peter, Peter, unless I wash your feet, you can have no share of me. Peter then says, well, then wash my whole body, Jesus, not just my feet. Then Jesus goes on and he washes all of the disciples' feet. And then he says, let me teach you the lesson. If no servant, no follower is greater than his master or greater than his teacher, and I have done this to you, do it to each other. Now again, by looking at the person of Jesus, the king of the kingdom, we learn what love is. And we learn first and foremost, love always starts from God. We have to be showered in his love. He has to wash us only when we're showered by him. In all of our mess, in all of the trash that's on us because of the things we've done and the things that have been done to us, only when he showers us with his love does he then empower us for this service. He showers and empowers and then calls us, if I am your master and I am your Lord, if you call me Lord, don't think I do these things and you don't live in this very same shape. Don't see me leading through service and in you in turn trying to be served. For the son of man, he says this in this book, came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So if we follow in the way of love, if we follow in the way of our Lord, we walk into a room and a place and we go, I didn't come to seek to be served but to serve and to give my life to give our lives for many. That's the picture of the king of the kingdom. Now, he then says what we all already know, and he begins to tell us about the cost of the kingdom. Just before he does, he says, You better be aware of the scribes, of the religious establishment, because even in the religious establishment, Everything can become about them. He says in his teaching, he said, beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts. They love to walk in the spiritual places and go, look at me. They love to make it about them, but they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. They will be judged for this. But then he says this. Let me tell you about the cost of the kingdom. And he does it through talking about a widow. Jesus sits down opposite the treasury and he watches the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people were putting in large sums. In another place, Jesus says that these people are almost blowing horns trying to say, look at me. But then a poor widow comes, puts in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And Jesus says, this is a moment. So he calls his disciples, come here, come here, come here. And he says to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Remember when he said all four times in verse 30? Love them with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, with your whole heart, your whole soul, your whole mind, your whole strength. What does that begin to look like? Well, here's what it says A widow's put on display. And it says, She's the example because she went all in, she gave everything she had. She's a widow. She's not the one noticed. Nobody recognized her in this moment. They recognize the rich people. They recognize the prestige, the powerful. She likely doesn't look good. She has absolutely nothing, likely in raggedy clothes. But all she has, everything she has, she goes all in. Now, when we go all in, we think of like DraftKings, fantasy football, right? I'm going, I'm going to bet a lot of money, or we Vegas. I'm going to bet a lot. But then we go all in, and we go, please. We cross our feet. Please tell me that's true. She didn't do that. Because we go please going all in. But reality is it's not all in. Our house is still there. Our car is still there. We still have some money in our bank account. We aren't going all in. She goes all in. And she doesn't go please. She goes all in in faith. She goes all in in faith. And it isn't just money, folks. It's all everything she had. All of who she is. So here's what a life of love means. And this is why I said it's a dangerous act. Loving your neighbor is a dangerous act. It is massively dangerous to our self-absorption. It's dangerous to our comfort. It's dangerous to our convenience. It's dangerous to our safety. It's dangerous to our security. What does it mean for you to go all in? Is it forgiving somebody right now walking up and saying, I forgive you? Or is it going and asking forgiveness that you feel like I'm gonna have to give everything I have to just ask for forgiveness? Is it making decisions of what you're not gonna do with your bank account or with your house or with your retirement program so that you can do something on behalf of somebody else? On behalf of something else? Is it getting up the courage, mustering up the courage to go talk to that person? What is going all in right now? What are the things right now that you're holding on so tightly to going, God, please don't tell me to release these. I promise you, if you're saying that, he's going, release them. Release them in service. Go all in. And when you go all in, we don't go all in like Vegas. I hope we go all in to the God who said, I came to give you life and give it to the full. Redemption Gilbert, what would it look like if even a portion of us went all in like that for Jesus on behalf of our neighbors? We went all in on behalf of love. I guarantee you we'd see things we've never seen before and we would experience joy like we've never experienced before. Joy unspeakable. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would experience joy unspeakable through obeying your command to love our neighbors as ourselves. And God, we cannot do that outside of you pouring forth your love and the power of the Holy Spirit upon us. God, make us that kind of people, the people you call us to be in the very image of your son, Jesus. Amen.